This is Neil Rockhine. This is the Killer Cross-Examination Podcast. And if you recognize my guest, which I presume you do, it's because uh, Norm Pattis is one of the great trial lawyers in the United States. He's a previous guest on this podcast. He's a stand-up comedian. He is a, a known Twitter um, provocateur, uh, provocateur, yeah, contrarian, and and recently was um, uh, I think wall to wall day to day coverage on behalf of uh, on Court TV and on Law and Crime and uh, every other network that was covering the Alex Jones Sandy Hook trial, uh, and he was uh, representing. Uh, Alex Jones, and I believe it's called Free Speech Systems. Is that right? Free Speech Systems, LLC. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, Norm, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's always fun to talk to you. Absolutely. So i I wanted just to to kind of I, I want to tell you first of all that that it, my cousin, uh, David Friedman, who's a lawyer, he made a comment to me. He wanted to know um, he wanted to know more about you, and he. Uh, is not a trial lawyer. He's not a, a litigator. He uh, is a transactional, you know, corporate uh, corporate lawyer. But he said he seems really smart, <laughs> and I said he is really smart. And so um, I, I first wanted to to share that anecdote. Well, I appreciate that. So t tell me what the trial was like. I don't want to talk about the result. The result is the result. Right. I mean, that's the result. Well, let me just get this out. You know, I mean, yeah. that's not the kind of history I wanted to make when I set out to try cases. And I like to say I got my ass kicked so hard that I now have a horizontal crack as well. And I'm not sitting I'm, I'm sitting on hot cross buns. You know, the trial, the trial was was brutal. I mean, and I don't I don't think I don't think many observers understand the posture of the case and how it got to where it is. So the how was the trial? The trial was as bad as anything I've experienced in thirty years of lawyering. Um, you know, fifteen. And you've been in and you've been in some humdinger of a of a trials. I mean, you're not a guy who's tried just you know breach of the peace and uh, will contests. I mean, you've tried some you've tried some really gnarly cases. Yeah, no, I have. I mean, you know, ba babies thrown off the bridge. You know, rapes, gratuitous rapes. Um, you know. A, yeah, yeah, I can go I can go down the list. But what made this particularly difficult was, you know, throughout the trial, um, there were 15 family members who lost loved ones and an FBI agent uh, who claimed that his feelings were hurt because he was called a crisis actor. Um, and they many of them sat in the courtroom and uh, they and, and they told horrible stories. The trial resembled a wake more than an adversarial proceeding. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. But they would tell, go on for 25, 30 minutes about how they met their spouses, their children, how much they loved their children, how they learned their children had, had died. And then after about a, and, and, and whenever they'd tell a funny story, all the supporters, and I don't think I had a supporter in the courtroom, would chuckle. And, you, and, and there was an occasion even where as one witness left the stand, one of the lawyers for the plaintiffs hugged him in the jury's presence. And, you know, I was in a position where, you know, how do you object um, to the loss uh, that these parents suffered uh, without looking even worse than you're going to walking into that courtroom. But I could have dealt with that. What made the trial just almost impossible as a matter of advocacy was prior to the 
uh, opening of evidence, Mr. Jones had been defaulted for failure substantially to comply with discovery. And as a result of that default, liability was, in the court's words, established. Um, and thus, we were there on a hearing in damages. Under Connecticut law, um, um, while the elements of the various torts that had been alleged were deemed established, including proximate cause, the plaintiffs had to prove the extent of their damages. So causation became the issue at trial. And one of the torts pled was intentional infliction of emotional distress. And in the complaint, it said that at the time Alex uttered, made his utterances about Sandy Hook, he knew them to be false. And he made them for the purpose of inspiring others to harass and intimidate the plaintiffs. The court took that as established by the default and relieved the plaintiffs of the responsibility to prove proximate cause as to any harm. And thus, the plaintiffs were able to get up and say, um, somebody reported that someone else urinated on the grave of my child. This was Alex's fault. Now, you're thinking, what about hearsay? Who said this? Um, how do we know it happened? Then you're thinking foundation. What's the nexus to Alex? All harm that these families suffered at the hands of third parties, known or unknown, was laid at Alex's feet. And, um, and, and you know, what are you going to do with that? Um, it was, it was, it was, it was overwhelmingly difficult. I mean, I watched, so I watched, I watched a good amount of the trial, uh, in part because I wanted to watch you in part because I thought it was an interesting case in part because, you know, I do commentary on these cases. And so, um, it was interesting to, to watch. Um, but I, one of the things that I, I, I want to sort of pick apart some different things I noticed during the trial. So we didn't get to see the voir dire. Um, but, but I did see, first I want to, I, I watched your, I watched the openings and the openings were very different. Your opening statement versus the opening statement that was given by the plaintiff's counsel. Um, the opening statement that you gave was, I, I mean, it was certainly rooted in some history. It was rooted in. A discussion about I don't want to say politics because that's that's just too, but it was it was rooted in a discussion about events and current events and then a lot of it seemed to go back to also that the prosecutor that that the, the plaintiffs lawyers were saying that um what were the what, what phrase did they use they said they wanted to stop Alex Jones stop Alex Jones right and so I I want to ask you about that because. First of all, when you were talking to the jury during your when you're you're when you're watching the jury during the plaintiff's opening, or you or you look at them out of the corner of their eye, um, what are you seeing? Are you seeing receptive faces? Are you seeing open faces? Does it seem like the mountain that you have to climb is getting higher? No, I think you know. I mean, first, you know, th this case it's difficult to defend Alex Jones for anything involving Sandy Hook in Connecticut, especially in a courthouse 20 dis miles distant from Sandy Hook. Everybody in Connecticut re if of a certain age knows what they were doing the day of that shooting, much like 9-11. And mo many of us have lost loved ones. During voir dire, you touched on that. Uh, my, my experience with so-called high-profile cases is that um, most veneer people aren't paying attention to the cases, even the most amazing cases. And that's because we've all got problems of our own. 
you and I, we get retained to represent somebody that becomes our problem and we worry about it all the time and see prejudice under every rock. Um, so the, I think the jurors that were selected um, either didn't, many of them didn't know who Alex Jones was, notwithstanding all the controversy. Um, many of them, uh, all of them knew about Sandy Hook. None of them lost a loved one or a family member there or knew someone who did. And they all committed to being fair and impartial jurors, committed to deciding the case um, based on the facts and law as presented in that courtroom. So I didn't have any doubts as to the jury's receptivity. During opening statement, you know, I, I pre-wrote my opening statement because I expected there would be objections to it. And I wanted to mark it as a court exhibit when the objections came. And ultimately I did that. So to, for purposes of preserving where I wanted to go. So as I watched the plaintiff's opening statement and I and I thought and I, I heard one of the plaintiff's lawyers, you know, talk about stopping Alex Jones, I'm like, holy cow, they're doing exactly what I want them, wanting them to do. They're politicizing this case. So I didn't object, you know, which I don't normally do during my adversary's opening, especially if I think some of mine is going to be objectionable. And I waited and then they began to object and I commented on the objections and the court admonished me, you know, that's improper and whatnot, um, you know, almost never admonishing the other side for doing mostly the same thing. But that's OK. I understood but, that. But there's a but let me stop there because there's a dynamic there that a lot of folks don't don't know that there's almost sort of a. Um, there's almost sort of a, I don't want to say collegiality. There's like a, you give your opening and you're either the kind of lawyer that's going to, we're either going to object to the to everything and just your objections out, which typically jurors start to think, let's let the guy talk. Let me hear what yeah. he has to say, right? Yeah. Or there's the, I'm not objecting. And then you get up there and you saying yours, which you ultimately did. Look, I didn't object to anything he said. I let you hear what he, I let him say whatever he wanted to say. Yeah. And then, right? I mean, that's sort of the way that I've that I've been. Well, that's you know, Jerry Spence teaches that. You know, I you mean, know, he's got a whole riff on that. You know, you'll notice that my adversary objected to my telling you the truth. <laughs> we, did. we didn't object to their truth. What are they trying to hide? You know, but you know, the, the lawyers on the other side, they they were hip to that and they squashed me. I thought the jurors listened carefully. And what I, I think we may have caught the plaintiffs by surprise because I think they thought it was just going to be a cakewalk, um, that they were just going to come in and engage in the memorial service and ask for a lot of money and get it, as they ultimately did. I think I made him work for it. But here's what happened. I think it was they a hugely different case from the case in in Texas. Uh, how so? I mean, I, I'd be interested in your comments on that. Um, because I thought that you. I thought that you were, you made a comment to the judge at a sidebar that I think um, was unlike any I've heard, which I think really revealed your um, your approach to cases. And I think it really sort of, in, I think it explains why I believe that this was a much different trial than, than the Texas trial. You said you're from, advocates anonymous right yeah and that was a phrase and i have no notes here i'm just going off yeah. my memory and yeah. i thought wow I, and you were like hey i i'm i advocate for people i'm i want to advocate that's what i do this is where things are tried this is where conflicts are 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 decided this is how we do it and as long as we have a relatively even playing field then we 
And you were like, look, I'm going to advocate for my client, whether you like my client or not, I'm going to advocate for him. That's what yeah. I'm going to do. And I thought you tried, and Norm, this is why it was different. You had a, you tried a, you, there were two competing narratives in this trial. There was the plaintiff's narrative, which was a relatively traditional um, um, personal injury plaintiff's narrative. It, from my view, again, horrible case, horrible backdrop, horrible facts. So nothing traditional or, 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 or normal about that. But it was a, that's the guy and the, he caused this harm and we really can't put a dollar on it, but here's the amount of money that, that I mean, that, that's what the plaintiff's case is. Ramp up the emotion, ramp up the injury, right? Um, and that, that's what a plaintiff's case is. Your case was different. I thought you tried a, um, you were trying this, I don't, I, I keep saying politics, but you were trying like a political case. Yes, I know Alex Jones said that and he said it a while ago and he subsequently apologized for it. And yes, you, you can't determine liability has been determined, but, but the cause, the amount, the, I want you to really focus on these things. And then you were talking about things that Alex Jones believed in, in the country and what he was fighting for and what he advocated and about gun rights. I mean, in about the second amendment, I mean, you, that was your case. You were continually going back to that theme. Well, and they, and I don't think the plaintiffs expected that it took them two or uh, two or three days to figure out what to do about it. And in the middle of trial, we ended up writing extensive briefs about the scope of my cross-examination. And they and the judge concluded that politics could not inter, we couldn't introduce political politics or political figures. And we had one moment, which I will die, still never seeing anything like in a courtroom. They had entered as an exhibit, um, a video of Alex complaining about, they're coming after our guns and he wants them. And then on the film, uh, the video was a magazine with a picture of Barack Obama. And I'll, I'll tie all these up in a minute. They had also offered an exhibit um, of, of people um, um, within Infowars, the, the, the company doing business uh, um, doing, uh, the, under the name Free Speech System, um, saying Donald Trump has said he'll never let us down. Uh, they showed a video of Alex referring to Hillary Clinton as a sea hag. Uh, they also showed social media metrics where Alex's traffic went up significantly from 15 to 16, and they said it was from Sandy Hook. So armed with all of that, this was their evidence. I say to a witness, well, you know, you, you, you heard the plaintiffs talk about the increase in traffic from 15 to 16. Did something else happen in 16 that could have increased that web traffic? Uh, they, they looked at me like they didn't know. I said, how about Donald Trump appearing on InfoWars? Objection! Sustained. Why? Well, this case is not about politics, the judge concluded. Why not? Um, they and, and so then I showed to another witness the picture of Barack Obama. I said, who's that? Barack Obama. Objection! Sustained. Judge, it's their exhibit. We object on hearsay grounds. Judge, they offered the exhibit. I didn't object. It's not hearsay. Well, uh, relevance. How can it not be relevant? They offered it beyond the scope. 
they kept trying and the judge finally went on the scope thing. So at the end of the case in my closing, I just showed one of the videos, an 18 minute video. Um, and I waited for all hell to break loose because they never touched it. They walked away from the political element of their case when they realized it could hurt them. So I don't think they, they I, I, I didn't think, I don't think they anticipated it. We would try to do that. Um, and I don't know how long the trial was, three, four weeks, but within about seven or eight days, I could feel the air leaving the room and the law of the case gelled against me. And so there was nothing I could do. The I'd, I'd retained the limited right only to question people about their views of gun violence um, and if, whether they knew Alex's. And this actually happened. I had one of the plaintiffs on the stand. I show him a video saying, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming for our gun rights. Um, he's doing it. They're coming after the Second Amendment. Sir, I said, do, do, do you have any idea what Mr. Jones's views on guns were? No. I said, seeing I that, that video? No. That. Yep. Okay. Then none of them knew. After that, mysteriously, none of them knew the views on gun rights. So it was a well-orchestrated a well-orchestrated memorial service. Very, very frustrating. Whether, so, I, 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 But I want, I want to pause there for a second because there were things that you did from a strategic standpoint that I was very interested in that I want to ask you about. First of all, you admitted some evidentiary things that were sort of bizarre. There was an exhibit that was admitted. It was their exhibit. It was the, and I, let me be clear. I'm, when I'm talking to you, I mean, I'm not an Alex Jones fan, but, but I'm a, but I'm a trial lawyer fan and I'm a, and I appreciate trials and I love the, I don't know how to improve the system necessarily as a whole, but I do love trials, right? Like I, and I, and I, and I love watching I love watching trials and I hate that the, the fact that the stuff that I like to watch and that I'm interested in is on the backs of tragedies yeah. and, and, and trauma. There is that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but I do like the trial aspect of it and I'm fascinated. I'm blessed to, to, to think, to know the rules of evidence and to watch some of the strategies. And one of the things that I watched you do, that's the backdrop to this question is you, there was an exhibit that they had played. They played a little snippet of a video. They introduced the whole video. The whole video is in evidence. I believe it was a minute long clip or a two minute long clip. And they played a small portion of it. And then you went to go play the rest of it. And then you said, it's in evidence. Like it's already there. Like it's there. Like they admitted the whole thing. They didn't admit it, a redacted part of it. I don't remember if you were permitted to play the whole thing, but I think at one point. No, I wasn't. That that is that's the occasion where they began to object to their their own exhibits as hearsay, and then as not relevant. And then then when neither of those passed mustard, um, they said we didn't ask the witness about the other portions of the video. And under the rule of completeness, you can offer if 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 someone offers a portion of something, and you believe that that portion is misleading or it mischaracterizes the, the whole, you can offer the whole under the rule of completeness on the theory that the jury is entitled to the complete context. Because this video went beyond that topic and raised po political topics as well, the court sustained it um, on, on completeness grounds or, uh, or excuse me, on scope grounds, trying to say my cross-examination was beyond the scope. Um, and so it was that very video that I played at the end in closing statements, the 18, the 18 minute video. The other thing that I thought the court did that was kind of bizarre is um, 
the plaintiffs, you know, Alex's company is just a disorganized mess. And the plaintiffs were able to present to the jury the impression that it's a well-oiled machine with some 80 employees, tens of millions of dollars of revenue, organizational flowcharts. You know, I, I say to the corporate rep, do they have a phone system? No. Do they have a receptionist? No. Uh, how do people communicate? Everybody's got their own cell numbers. Um, they showed her then copies of organizational charts they got via discovery that nobody at InfoWars knew anything about. Whether a consultant hired them uh, or did them or somebody did that on, as a back of the envelope thing, it was a document we were required to disclose. And they used it to try to create the impression that Alex had a well-oiled machine um, that was a, a machine targeted, that's what they said, targeted at the plaintiffs for the purpose of making money. The fact of the matter is Alex believes what he says, and he says a lot all day long, and all the people around him try to catch up with him. So getting a corporate rep to testify was difficult. In the Texas litigation and in the plaintiff in the Connecticut litigation, both Sandy Hook cases, four or five employees served as corporate reps, and they were absolute disaster, absolute disasters. And the reason for that is nobody knows what, really what's going on in there. There is no effective management structure. So we needed a corporate rep at the end. We picked a Connecticut lawyer I knew. She had about a month to get ready, and she did the best she could. So when they were when they had her testifying, she, they could say, "What's your opinion about this? What do you know about that?" And she was able to complete to, to repeat what she learned, and they were able to pick and choose their targets with respect to what she said to create the impression of the company they wanted. Then they moved in limine, meaning at the threshold of my cross-examination, to prevent me from eliciting hearsay from her on the theory that she could only testify as to what she had personal knowledge of. I said, well, you know, an expert, I mean, a corporate rep is akin to an expert, and they can rely on hearsay because they're offering opinions about the entity they represent. Um, the court denied that motion. So they were able to use the corporate rep um, to prove their purposes and to try to prohibit me then um, from, from accomplishing mine. And it was all with the aim of trying to portray free speech systems and Alex Jones as a liar, because the law of the case established that, meaning the, the, the disciplinary default established certain facts, uh, including def defamation. I had objected to their using the word liar in their examination. The court said that's been established. Well, you know, the case law is that a default operates to establish material facts, but there was never a hearing on material facts. Now, now those of your listeners who aren't lawyers, what's a material fact? It's a fact that matters. Not all facts matter. I've got a flannel shirt on. You've got a great looking purple tie. Um, we're doing an interview. What we're wearing isn't material. If somebody wants to question anybody about what took place during this interview, it might matter if we're challenging their credibility. Did they actually see what we had to say? But as to the content, it's immaterial. So the court never made materiality findings and sort of uh, let the plaintiffs uh, get away with things on an ad hoc basis. When I and then when I was having trouble with the the, po the political thing, it's that door was shutting. I made a run at at, at having one of the plaintiffs talk about the allegations in the complaint, hoping to go down that road. And they objected, and the court sustained that. So it was, it was. Um, I mean, the word shit show comes to mind. But, but I mean, but. With it, when I say that you that there are two different narratives, that that to me I picked up on it relatively quickly. You had a narrative, you had a, a and that's what I think a lot happens in a lot of trials. 
one side has a narrative and the other side has a narrative and you're hoping that you can get the jurors like, you know, like Bermuda grass in the, in the sun, you want it to kind of grow your way so that it, it, you know, and once jurors, I think, start to lean a particular way, our theory, of course, is that it's going to be hard for the other side to kind of pull them back. Right. Um, and, and, I, and I noticed that. For example, when you were cross-examining, they had a, an agent who did an analysis Right. He was there. Was he a former FBI agent? And he did an analysis on Clint Watts. He, yes. Yes. He, yeah. So t t tell me about him. Tell me why the plaintiff called him. For, what was he there to say? And then I'll talk to you about your cross-examination. So Clint Watts was an interesting guy. I'm going to look up uh, the title of a book because your listeners are going to want to look at this. Um, and I don't mean to, to be rude. I'm doing this on your uh, on your dime. Um, um, Clint Watts, messing with the enemy, surviving in a social media world of hackers, terrorists, Russians, and fake news. So Clint Watts was an F FBI agent. Well, he'd gone to the military academy at West Point, and then he was an agent briefly, um, FBI agent. He left to go um, uh, pursue an academic career, um, studying in Monterey, uh, which was then acquired by Middlebury, where he met somebody who was doing work on Al-Qaeda. So the next thing you know, he's in the Horn of Africa. Um, he's left the military. We did his seven years. He's left the FBI. Um, he's working as a private consultant, and he's trying to crack Al-Qaeda, and he's watching their use of the internet to recruit people. And then social media comes along. So, you know, sort of like electronic communication 2.0, and ISIS cleans Al-Qaeda's clock. And he befriends a certain terrorist, an American, I can't remember his name, who was perhaps living in Somalia, um, and ultimately lures the guy into his, you know, out, out of out of hiding and to his death, I think. Um, um, and uh, so Watts was now working as an expert consulting companies and government on the use of social media to engage and influence people. And so they brought him in. Uh, because he had studied the, the 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 social media footprint of Alex, and he was able to say um, that during a given period, I don't recall the parameter, Alex Alex's social media footprint had 550 million imprints, mm -hmm. and and that became a big number for damages at the end of the case. And so he 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 and I you know he testified he works for corporations helping them understand how to enhance their 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 footprint. And he works trying to detect terrorists. And I said, well, which is Alex? You're not calling him a terrorist, are you? And he didn't really know. So that, that was his purpose in the trial, was to talk about the reach of Alex's message. What was your, now you, you took some interesting, first of all, I think during that cross, I, I'll say I, realize just how smart and 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 literate and l and well-read you were hmm. because you went back to go talk to him about you cross-examined him on classes he took in in uh where was it at west point right um uh you know about things they're taught about sun tzu about you know politics was a tie-in with him isn't politics the Whatever, whatever the quote was, you had talked about Sun Tzu and in Clausewitz and, and yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, and and what was the point of of that? Were you trying to test him out, or were you trying to get that in the record? Did you think you had certain jurors that would appeal to that? Were you trying to get him off base? 
where where were you? I mean, I it, it was very clever, but I was wondering where you were going with that. Did you think that it was too? I don't want to say in the weeds, but what? But what? But it was. I mean, it was definitely detailed. Certainly, my adversaries thought it was in the weeds. They had things to say about it at sidebar at one point. Um, and, you know, I, I love cross-examining experts, especially scientific experts, of which this guy was not one, because you always learn something. And so, you know, I remember as an undergraduate, I took a lot of chemistry courses and, you know, I fell in love with the periodic table because that's where it all begins. And so any any enterprise, any experts enterprise has building blocks and methods. And so I think what you want to identify with an expert is is how it is they put their opinion together. So what body of knowledge do they rely upon um, to draw and reach the conclusions they did? Watts had never testified in a courtroom, and he wasn't a scientific expert, but he was someone who, because of his education, skill, and training, had insights that an ordinary jury wouldn't have, and he was permitted to opine. We didn't challenge his credentials as an expert. Um, and so I was trying to to, you know, he was testifying about the power and reach of ideas and about the use of social media to motivate people. Um, and he wanted to be able to, he, they, they wanted him to be able to say that Alex's message was hate and that as a result of that hate, it went into a marketplace that inspired hateful people to harass the plaintiffs. And so I wanted to find out how much he knew about ideas. I wanted to find out how much he knew about ideological warfare. I wanted to, in a sub rosa way, suggest that ideas are weapons as used by any side. And then he talked about the use of anger to motivate people. And um, I wanted, I, I asked him a question about Aristotle and anger. And of course he said, well, I haven't read him in 30 years, but you know, I, I don't think there is hate speech per se. I think people hate what they fear and what they fear makes them angry. And what I wanted people to understand about Alex is that his ranting about the Second Amendment um, was in the context of a world where we've lost a consensus about fundamental values. And there are a lot of fearful people out there. And that doesn't mean, mean that Alex was a quote unquote stochastic terrorist out there trying to gin people up to harass the Sandy Hook families. And then, you know, along the way, he stunned me, Mr. Watts did, to my view that the classic work on the, uh, the use of, uh, of information in our society right now is a work by Shoshona Zuboff called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. And she makes a powerful case about how we, we, we get access to social media for free, but the owners of social media use us. Um, and what they do is they harvest our data and they harvest our data um, um, based on emotional responses to thing and nothing engages like rage. And so when we are enraged and we are engaged, they're saying, you know, you click on this, this, this and the other thing, the five random things you click on, you'll be grouped with other people who click on those five random things. And with the use of artificial intelligence, they're able to tell us, they're, they're able to predict our behavior in ways that we may not even see ourselves. And this was this is ubiquitous. It happens everywhere. I wanted to normalize what Alex was doing. Um, and you went and you actually asked him a question about whether or not, I, I want to try to recall the question, you probably will, but you asked him a question whether he believed that corporations, isn't that what big, I think you called, you were talking about tech. Right. Isn't that what big tech is doing or isn't, or isn't that what technology companies are doing? And then he was sort of caught 
like a deer in the headlights, I think, at that point. Well, he was because they again, this was a case he wasn't right. He wasn't because because you had taken it as, as a very good point of cross examination and storytelling. And you backed him into a corner, basically. I mean, I, I, these are compliments to you. Mm. But you 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 built a, a, a foundation based on some principles that he would wanted to apply to Alex Jones. And then you took the very same points and the very same principles and said, okay, well, let's let's look at look at it in a different context. Isn't that what tech companies are doing? And then he was it tech companies or was it um was it corporations or or both, or, I think. Both. Yeah. But and I he think was like and he he oh no, that's not what's happening with them. It's different. But they but it was. And I think that, you know, I don't know if the jury got it or not. I mean, the verdict suggests I they got did. it. Yeah. I, but I mean, that's the joy of cross-examination. You know, the 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 101 version of cross is never never answer a question you do ask a question you don't know the answer to. But the the graduate school version of cross is get to the point where you can ask why and you don't care what the answer is. And the way you get there with a with an expert is by breaking his method down, getting him to commit to the application of the method in the context that he's been paid to talk about, and then have him have to acknowledge the method as explaining something either contrary to what he just said or explaining something benign, such that you take the teeth out of the attack. And so exactly. that 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 was the purpose of all of those questions as to Watts. And he I, was easy, frankly. I, you know? I, it looked like it because he was sort of, I mean, and he was, I think you even got to the point where you use the, the wait. So you were a special agent. I mean, are there any non-special agents? Yeah. Or are, are there any no. agents or do you guys have like double special or? Is... <laughs> yeah. You know, I wasn't going to do that because, you know, it's, it, it's fun when you first start doing it, you know, you think special agent, wow, this guy must be really something until you realize they're all special agents. Right. So you okay. do that four or five times and it loses its thrill, right. but he was such a stuffed shirt. I thought he had it coming. So I gave it to him. You know? All right. Let, let, let me ask about, I want to ask about, um, uh, so you, you have very different style, a very different style from the, the two, lead plaintiff's lawyers that I observed. I forget the one, I, I forget the, the one who did the most of the argue, the most of the, the trial, uh, he was seated immediately to your left. Yeah, um, yeah. He's a former US attorney, yeah. And then the guy next to him was the one who, Kosoff, is that his name? Koskoff, Josh Koskoff, Kos yes. Koskoff, I mean, they- He's they the owner, he, he is the grandson yeah. of the founder of Koskoff, Koskoff and Beter, probably the state of Connecticut's and perhaps New England's preeminent personal injury firm. All right, they, they had very different styles. Oh yeah. Um, um, <laughs> who, who's the other, who's the lawyer that was sitting next to you? What's his name? Chris Maddy, Chris Maddy. Okay, so Chris Maddy, um, he moved around a lot, a lot. I mean, he was, walking and pacing and moving and moving a lot. Um, uh, you were, were more stable. You were in, typically you were in one spot, you remained in that spot. If it were at the podium, you were at the podium and you were looking at the, the witness or if you were at your table, you were doing that. Um, do you do that consciously? And what did you think about your positioning compared to to Chris Maddy, who was very, I mean, physical. I mean, he was definitely moving around the courtroom a lot. Well, he, you know, Chris Maddy had an audience to perform for because the first 
not not before the bar, but the first and second row of spectators were almost all his clients. Um, and so if you notice what he was doing, you know, he was trying to include them in the discussion. He would turn to them. Uh, I was told I wasn't there the day the courtroom, the, the television cameras were set up in the courtroom. I'm told that the Koskoff lawyers had a lot to say about the angle of the cameras. Um, and, you know, I noticed that a couple of them lost a bunch of weight before trial. So I had the impression they were performing for their clients. Um, you know, look at Lee performing for the camera. You know, this is my highlights reel. <laughs> um, but in terms of trial tactics, trying to build the sense of community, you know, with with the jurors. I didn't have an audience to play to. You know, I had I, I had only only a paralegal with me at trial and some days no one. Um, my client didn't attend trial, and I wasn't going to turn to the family members and taunt them or invite them to admire my performance. I, my, Joel, my job was to try to offend them as little as possible on the theory that they were very sympathetic and decent human beings. The claim was to put some dis that the effort was to put distance between Alex's utterances and the harm they suffered. The law, the way the case developed, I was unable to do that. We'll see what the appellate courts have to say about that. So I thought Chris's use of the room was effective. I think as a general matter for young lawyers starting out, um, I think that um, when you are doing direct examination, you want the focus on the witness. And Josh represented um, the classical approach. He stayed at the lectern, putting no difference between himself and uh, no, no distance between himself and the, and the and the plaintiffs so that the jury had to look at the plaintiffs. Chris took a more dramatic flair, and I thought he was trying to gin the jury up. No, nowhere more so than during his assault on Alex, which I thought was one of the most unusual cross-examinations I'd ever seen. Yeah, I want to talk was, to you about that. You know, he's basically dancing around the courtroom, screaming at my client and and and, and inviting the jury to, you know, to to, to share his scorn for him. Um, it worked for him, though. But I think, you know, in terms of cross-examination, um, you want to be the focus. In terms of direct, you want your witness to be the focus. In this case, where I felt I had a hostile judge um, and I had an audience, there was nobody in the audience rooting for me. Um, um, you know, I tried to to maintain as low a profile as possible, which given my mouth is hard. <laughs> had you tried a case in front of her before? I've had proceedings with her before. Yes. In in this case or or in others? Um, in others, others. Um, I'd never seen a sidebar like this where it was where the 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 microphone was still on. Was that was that unusual in your experience? I, it's unprecedented. I think I you know the, the the case Alex has gone through a number of lawyers. I've been in and out of the case a couple of times. Tried to get out of it prior to trial. Uh, when I was fired, I think back in April, she wouldn't let me out. Alex and I made our peace and and I tried the case. But her position is, I don't know who's going to be here next for Jones. And she didn't want it to be said that anything occurred that wasn't a matter of public record. It made management of the trial more difficult because there are times where you want to speak in shorthand um, in ways that might be misunderstood by the public or your client to advance the trial. She wouldn't permit it. Um, and um, uh, I didn't appreciate it, but hey, it's her courtroom. What what happened? Um, I want to talk about Alex Jones for for a minute as a as a defendant in a case because there were people that don't know much about um, civil cases versus criminal cases, and they were like, "Why doesn't he have to be there?" 
So why why didn't Alex have to be there? And was that do you think uh was it I mean, why didn't he have to sit there during the trial? Was that a was that a matter of strategy? If you can share that with us, was that just better if he's not? Uh... It's a little bit of both. In a, in a criminal case, uh, a, a, a defendant has a constitutional right to be present at all so-called critical stages of the proceeding. That's when anything that's significant is going to happen. And for a defendant not to be present or to exercise that right, almost any court in its right mind will want a waiver from that client and will be reluctant to uh, to, to accept one. There are occasions in which a client may act up such that the court bars them from the courtroom. I think we saw that in the confrontation between the judge and the uh, the pro se defendant in the Waukesha trial that just mm -hmm. ended. In this, in civil cases, you 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 don't have um, uh, 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 you have the right to attend uh, a trial, um, but the court doesn't command you to attend the trial, um, and no, and it doesn't ask for a waiver. Uh, it doesn't ask for a waiver hearing. So there, there, there are no Sixth Amendment considerations there. Should there be Seventh Amendment, you know, which is the the, the amendment governing civil proceedings um, considerations, maybe, but the law just hasn't evolved that way. And so it's not uncommon for plaintiffs to not have their clients present in the courtroom. I have some friends who try high value plaintiffs cases. If they have a plaintiff that is unlikely to be likable by the jury, they don't keep them in the room. They get them on and off the stand in a hurry. In Alex's case, he's very voluble. Um, he's very unpredictable. Um, I may be a decent lawyer, but there's a concept in the law known as client control. Will your client do as said? Um, it, you, you can draw your own inferences, but Alex was a challenge in terms of client control. Additionally, um, he uh, is a broadcaster. He broadcasts daily. And the op the opportunity costs of being in that courtroom would have been significant at a time when free speech systems is struggling. So we made a decision that he would appear only as required, and that was for his cross-examination. Tell me about the, the judge didn't issue a gag order. Correct. We, uh, <laughs> nobody asked for one. And I think the reason they didn't ask for one is they didn't want to give Alex another platform to complain about, you know? And so the law with respect to gag orders under the rules of professional conduct, you and I have to be limited in what we say during a trial because there's a rule against prejudicial, extrajudicial out of court, you know, um, um, testimony or statements. And so we have to be careful lest what we say, um, um, you know, arguably tend to undermine fair trial rights. The court has, an, at least in Connecticut, inherent supervisory authority over parties, and she could have tried. She could have issued a gag order. Um, we had litigated uh, a, a gag order against a client in a in a homicide case some years ago to the Connecticut Supreme Court. Whether that was lawful uh, before the court could rule, the the client committed suicide, and we never got a decision. So you know there was no gag order. Alex would some days when he wasn't on the stand appear in front of the courtroom and give multiple press conferences, uh, which gave the plaintiffs fits. And I said, "Well, ask for a gag order." Oh no, we're not going to do that. And you know, and the judge didn't do it either. I don't think they wanted to give him something else to complain about. And then, so I was at because there were days where. <laughs> I, I I turn on the law and crime channel and I see the 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 camera outside the courtroom. I'm like, why is it outside the courtroom? This is the first time I've seen that. And then sure enough, I see you at one point. You're like walking, you're outside, you're waiting 
for Alex Jones. Uh, I don't remember if that's the day that he went in or he just showed up and then he left. He would have uh, gone in the day I waited out there for. Yeah, yeah. and then um, and then there was this the, the discussion. Then when he testified, and I I, I want to ask you about him. He was um, he was certainly just talking about the trial. He was broadcasting about the trial and he was broadcasting about the judge. Um, and then that was ultimately admitted in court, I believe, right? It was, yeah. What did you, now, most of us lawyers, uh, us mortals, as we, our client would do that, we would be, you know, trying to dig a hole beneath the table and crawl under it. Um, but you seem to, you know, kind of just stand there and deal with it. So what were you feeling when that was going on? And what was that like? You know, I am brave. Well, yeah, you're, you know, most, yeah, most often you tell your clients, shut up, talk when I, <laughs> you know, talk when I tell you to talk. Yeah. I remember one years ago, I had a case of a reverse discrimination case. I had nine clients. We did quite well and I won millions of dollars. Um, and, uh, one of the clients said something to me during jury selection. I said, stop, I need to think about this. He says, well, you keep telling me to shut up. Why am I here? Am I a potted plant here to just look good? I said, yeah, exactly. And then he, <laughs> he thanked me in the end, but you know, Alex, Alex is a force of nature. He's going to say what he's going to say. And there, he's, he's not going to listen. And what's more, I thought pivotal to the defense was portraying Alex as a mad prophet. You know, he's been tarred with the brush of Sandy Hook, a minuscule portion of what he's broadcast about. But he's largely been right about big tech. He's largely been right about the influence of big organizations and data and co the collective desire to, in the name of goodwill, um, impose conditions on the liberty of all of us. He's an angry populist. And I said that during the closing statement. He was handcuffed in this trial. I call it a, a fatal trilemma. The court issued rulings as sanctions um, that he couldn't testify that his company was in bankruptcy. He couldn't testify that Sandy Hook was a minuscule portion of what he covered. He couldn't testify that they didn't make much money or even lost money on covering Sandy Hook. There were nine or 10 topics. She told him, you cannot testify about these things. Alex understood that if he broke those orders, he could be in criminal contempt. If he obeyed those orders, he might be committing perjury because he'd be testifying about things he didn't believe to be true. Um, and so if he tried to avoid that dilemma by pleading the fifth, the jury might get an adverse inference um, that, 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 you know, that, that they could be used against him. So we called it a trilemma. And in discussing that, Alex made the decision to boycott the rest of the trial. So he appeared as he was required to appear under subpoena to answer questions from attorney Maddie. I didn't question him myself, and I didn't recall him as a witness. I thought he handled Maddie well. I thought that notwithstanding the orders that Judge Bellis gave, um, Alex testified pretty much to, as to how he wanted to testify, and she didn't sanction him. Um, at the what end, was your what was your thought about the exchange? I mean, Chris Maddie got at him at the end. There was a discussion about a something about uh chinese uh chinese struggle session try I, I don't even know what that even is so that's uh, where the communist party gets you in and tries to eliminate your false consciousness by getting you to admit the error of your ways and rejoin the the, the and rejoin the orthodox okay. that's a struggle session and then there he had another reference to something about uh 
uh, Iraq or was it Iraqi children or? Um, yeah. So Maddie was trying to press me about apologizing and, and Alex erupted and saying, it's like you liberals, you don't apologize for all the dead kids in Iraq, you know, or something like that, you know, in, mm -hmm. the, in the war that Hillary started. And then Maddie and he got into it. And then. You yeah. At that point. I thought the judge, and I think this is going to be an interesting issue on appeal. I thought she lost control of the proceedings entirely at that point. You know, I had been admonished any number of times, uh, stand up when you object. Uh, we'd been brought to sidebar. What do I have to do to make you guys get along, you know, and, you know, and she's trying very hard. And so she wanted non-speaking objections, just say objection, one, 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 two, one or two words of, uh, uh, what the basis of the objection is, don't argue your point, stand when you do it. So Maddie's, I think, abusing my client, arguing with him, stepping on him, harassing him, haranguing him. I start to object. Alex and he get into it. And the judge just kind of sat there. And then in the end, you know, she looks at me like, what did you want me to do? Do you want, are you objecting to your own client's answers? And I'm like, I did, I, I did, I did see that. And your response was, I'm looking for profession. I didn't say it in this word, in these words, professionalism in the courtroom. You've got a lawyer here who hears me objecting. He keeps going. You're not ruling. Who's and and basically the and I couldn't say it in these words in a public forum. But whose responsibility is it to control the courtroom and see that justice is your, done? Your answer was, I. You've got a. You got an a, officer which, of the court, an officer of the court and a witness responding to the officer of the court. And you got another officer of the court who's making an objection. And you have an officer, an officer of the court and an officer of the court knows that there's an objection out there. He should stop. I mean, was basically the two of us are officers of the court and one is a witness. I mean, so it, it, that she let him she let him get away with murder, in my view. I thought it was gratuitous. I thought it was mean spirited. Um, and I thought it was uncalled for. And that, in the end, then when they, he was talking about uh, Robbie Parker, and then that exchange, um, and I remember, then he, he asked a question, and it was you objected to it, and then, and then he asked another question, and he got maybe three words, five words out, maybe because it was the exact same. He was the exact same because uh, um, he started going through all the other people besides Robbie Parker. Um, and you said, he goes, Obje objection, you know, uh, whatever it was, assumes not argumentative, assumes facts, not evidence, whatever the, the and, uh, and I remember he said, well, you didn't, didn't let me finish my objection. You didn't let me uh, finish my question. You said, same, <laughs> same question. Different form. Yeah. Same, same question, same language, same beginning. There's an inference that it's the same, that it's, that it's objectionable. And it was. <laughs> and then he finished it. And then you said objection. And then the judge sustained it. Yeah. Uh, but he, he went ahead and did it anyhow, though. I mean, that, I, that was, a, that was, you know, it made for interesting. I'm sure, I'm sure it'll live forever on YouTube um, as an example of sort of B grade television lawyering but it was a low watermark i thought how in, would the judge have gotten if you were if the tables were turned and you were in the judge's seat would you tell me how what what you would have done differently would you have helped um, you guys in yeah time? right and, have, yeah. ladies and gentlemen of the jury i'm going to ask you to leave the room for a minute counsel call counsel approach we're going to have one question when there's an objection stop to the witness 
stop if there's an objection um and if and, and the first person who breaks this rule and she told us this on other occasions gets held in contempt so get get the jury out of the room you know take the energy out of the confrontation get everybody to calm down and focus on orderly proceedings i thought that was shameful um and then i was you didn't uh you didn't cross Alex Jones, even though he's your client, he was called by the other side. He's an adverse witness. You didn't cross him. Um, so basically, you either thought, "Good, we've done as well as we can," or there's no. And then you didn't recall him. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you did. You put on a case. I don't think no. you called anybody. No. Um. So were you comfortable? I mean, as the as the case was positioned at that point. Were you comfortable? We, we, I, I know you were, because I, I want to ask you about one thing you did with the jury during your during your closing. But were you comfortable at that point? I mean, you think that at that point, given the circumstances, that given the the, the rulings, that you had the best, this was the best you were going to get right then and there. So we had prepared. You know, Alex wanted to testify at great length about many issues that. Given the the law of the case, it's, as it had evolved to that point, the judge was not going to permit him to testify about. Um, and there were limited things that we could have gotten from him um, that might have helped us, but didn't really address the issue of causation. So the first question I had was, how well did he respond to Maddie? And I'd give him a B or a B plus. I, I, Alex is a very very difficult witness. I'm not going to comment on whether lawyers involved in the case from Texas and I had put money on whether Alex would be held in criminal contempt in either of the trials. I'm just not going to comment on that. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, I'd give him a B, B plus. I, I didn't think that Maddie was particularly effective. He was well prepared. I thought his, his, his emotional stunt at the end looked canned and contrived. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, maybe he really was genuinely outraged. Um, um, when it so so whenever my rule of thumb is whenever you put a witness on the stand um um you're going to get something but it's going to cost you something and never put a witness on the stand if you're not sure you can cover the cost and so because i thought alex did bb plus work with respect to maddie and I thought Maddie lost it and was ineffective at the end of his cross-examination. I didn't want to put Alex back on and give after Maddie had had a day or two to think about it um, and come back at Alex. When it came to the end of the case, and you know, I had the right to lead Alex at that point because he was he was their witness. And of course, they didn't know that. I had to show them the case. So I could have made points in hay with Alex. If I had it to do again, I'd still make the same decision. When he came back on his case in chief, he came back to Connecticut and it was largely the same analysis, a little easier this time um, because we had the decision to put, him, to put him on. And again, I didn't want, and the law of the case had evolved in a way that made it even harder for us to accomplish anything at this point. So I didn't want to give Maddie another shot at Alex. I thought Alex handled him as well as could be expected. Well, I mean, I, I did mean, you? I've better not said his name. It's true. I've said other people's names when they are. You put a target on his back, just like you did every single parent and loved one sitting here. No, did you? No, I didn't. No, you didn't. That's argumentative. There's no, there's speculative. There is no foundation for it. And it's 
inappropriate. Let's move on. These are real people. You know, Jackson, Mr. Jones? I think you just told them to move on. Just like all the Iraqis, but you liberals kill and love. It's just, you're unbelievable. You switch on emotions on and off when you want. You're, it's just ambulance chasing. Why don't you show a little respect? Objection, Judge. I think that if you get what you give in this court. Objection. You have families in this courtroom here that lost children, sisters, wives, moms. This is this a struggle session? Are we in China? I've already said I'm sorry hundreds of times, and, I, and I'm done saying I'm sorry. I didn't regenerate this. I wasn't the first person to say it. American gun owners didn't like being blamed for this, as the left did. So we rejected it mentally and said it must not be true. And but I legitimately thought it might have been staged, and I stand by that. And I don't apologize for and, it. And, and don't apologize, Mr. Jones. Please don't apologize. No, I've already apologized to the parents over because and over again. We know you're I don't objection. apologize to you. Objection. Don't apologize objection. to you. You're going to do it again. Objection, Judge. Aren't you? Objection. Objection. Don't apologize to you. Even those of us that are trial lawyers and respect the good exchange, that was, even if you're not an Alex Jones fan, that just, that exchange from my view, as, as I was watching, it just got uncomfortable. It yeah. just was an uncomfortable, it was an uncomfortable exchange. It wasn't, um, it, it, it it wasn't there was there, there was no artistry there was no strategy it wasn't a matter of just um you know i painted the witness in a corner and now he's struggling to get out it was just how do we basically scream at each other you know what i mean how do we it talk was a performance he that's how he you could see this in some of their examinations, everything was well choreographed. They wanted to end on an angry note, and he was playing to his clients. I mean, usually at the end of something like that, you can tell if someone when they when somebody picks up when a lawyer does that, and then at the end, this is my observation. It's my observation alone. I'll see if you agree with it. At the end of that kind of exchange, where there and the judge calls it, we're taking a break and stop and you know calm down, and the lawyer is almost like. And then there's a bit of chagrin, right? Either you go right back to it or there's a chagrin like, and I sensed that there was some chagrin. It was like, that was a moment where he and Alex Jones were kind of going at it. And one person's a lawyer and the other is the witness. And it was like a, no, I haven't seen a prosecutor do that with a, a, a defendant on the witness stand. I haven't seen any prosecutor who did that in a criminal case would get a mistrial. That, that was so it, far I, over the line. And I haven't it, seen a defense lawyer do that. Yeah. With, I mean, to that degree, usually at some point you're like, you know, I mean, this isn't one of those moments where you're trying to get into a, I mean, if you, if, if you got the, if you lit a, a, a flame under the witness, then you step back and let them just ramble on. You know what I mean? Yeah, but you don't. Yeah. So I watched that and I thought that was um, so that, that that led to the other part of the case. If I, I had if I had it to do yeah. over again, that moment after my second objection was ignored, I should have walked into the center of the court and taken command of the room. And I, I was so stunned by it. I let Maddie I let, I let him run. And that's a mistake I made. So I think learning moment, you know, if you if it's getting out of control, um, don't sit on the sidelines, get in the center of the court and look at the judge and say, do something, you know. That I mean, you, I fall. You appear to have a so I you're so quick witted 
And I, again, I, it just, it's, it's, and you're, you're so well read and you have so many cases under your belt. I could tell that even at the sidebars, when the judge, when she started to say something, I could tell you already were sort of knew how you wanted to respond. And a couple of times you would say something like you would start to talk and she would go like, and you go, sorry, sorry, because you're trying to anticipate, right. What mm -hmm. you kind of have an idea what, what's coming. Um, I want to ask you about two subjects. One I want to ask you about during the jury, during your closing. At one point, you literally looked at the jury, a juror, and did something I haven't seen before, which was you, which was, I, I wanted to know if you picked out a particular juror and, and you said, I want you to, and you look, it's going to make you uncomfortable. I want you to think about and I forget the specific question, but you had said, I want you to, it's hard to think about money and to think about, you know, are they, how much they've, what's this, you know, are they, I think it might have been, are they seeking more? Are they asking for more? The amount of money has to be tied to something. And you're like, but I, yeah, I want you to, I know I'm going to look right at you. I know that this is uncomfortable, but I want you to, it is uncomfortable, isn't it? And I, you, do you do you remember that moment where you looked yeah at I do shirt? yeah so one of the beauties of the English language is that you is both singular and possessive and plural rather and so when you're looking at a jury there was a jury of six there were four three alternates in the stand you know you're you're saying you 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 but really you know many years ago I went to some CLE I'd been a lawyer for a year or two it was up at Harvard I don't remember it's the only time I was ever on the camp well my mother-in-law taught there the only class I ever attended at Harvard was this CLE um, and it was on jury on, on how to relate to juries and there was an exercise where um, when you're talking to the jurors they'd have you sit in front of a mock jury box and you'd shake hands with each juror as you were talking because that forced you to look at the juror and so the, the 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 goal was to make contact with each juror. And then I was in a jury where somebody practiced this and he didn't look at me throughout the entire presentation, but he looked at many of the others and I felt left out and resentful. Um, and to this day, I remember that feeling, how powerful it was. So when I'm giving a closing argument, I, I make a point of using you, you know, I'm looking at the jurors, I want you to think about, you know, and, and then I'm taught, I'm looking right in their eye, I want you to do this. And then there's this other concept called mirroring. Um, if you feel, you know, like for me, I think we talked about this last time. Uh, for me, everything in everything about jury selection and about jury management comes down to one word, bounce. Um, are you resonating with the person? Are you getting something back? And we're bats in the end. We're still reptiles. You can tell when you're getting back something from somebody. Um, and so mirroring is a way of bring, of corralling, bringing in a reluctant juror. So if you've got a juror that's sitting back there like this and won't look at you, um, you know, you mirror their body language. You stand up there and you do this yourself and you look. And if you're quiet, they look up like, what the fuck? You know, what, what happened here? Did he die? So the guy who's doing this, you're doing this, and he looks at you, and then you say, now you, you. So I had a couple of those moments. There was an older guy in the back, um, and he just wasn't buying what I had to say, and ultimately, apparently did not. But I had to make the effort. And so at him, you know, I know this is going to make you uncomfortable. It does, doesn't it? I just want something back. 
something back. And I don't remember if he gave me anything back at that point. And, and so my objective is to, is to talk to each juror as though they and I are alone in the room. And that's what I was trying to accomplish at that point. Um, and the last thing I wanted to, to touch on, I appreciate you telling me all that, because I, I was curious if you were talking to a particular juror. That, in that instance, I definitely was. Um, let me ask you about um, uh, trying a case in front of a, we'll just say with a difficult judge. Hmm. Um, I don't know the judge. I don't know her. I don't know how she is in other cases. I have no idea. Um, and it doesn't matter for our purposes, whether she's the greatest judge or the worst judge or whether she's great in other cases or not, because clearly you were in the middle of an experience with the judge that was appeared to be hostile to your case. Mm, yeah, you think? <laughs> and, and appeared to be, yes, and appeared to be, and appeared at times to be uh, difficult with you. So how do you handle that? I mean, this yep. wasn't like a one day OWI trial where you can just, you know, I mean, you, it was a long time you spent with this judge over a m many weeks. Well, and over many years now, you know, she's, she, you know, I, she, in Connecticut, difficult cases get us civilly get assigned to something called the complex litigation doctor docket. And one judge follows that case as opposed to it migrating around the building. So she'd been on the case for many years and, and had any, you know, dozens, if not scores of status conferences and everything was urgent. Everything was an emergency and everything was difficult, especially with me. Um, she had moved for sanctions. She had referred me to disciplinary counsel early in the case for the manner in which we took an affidavit. I had to defend my law license at a trial. I won. I then moved to recuse her. She wouldn't be recused. She then, um, in, you know, she then ordered sanctions against Mr. Jones when he complained about somebody sending child porn to his company and suggested it might have been plaintiff counsel. She denied him a right to have a motion to dismiss her. I took an emergency appeal to the state, uh, a Connecticut Supreme Court, excoriating her for violating the First Amendment. It took him 14 months to make a decision justifying or upholding her on grounds that created new law in Connecticut. I then moved to recuse her again. Ultimately, she engaged in a, um, she, she, she accused me at one point of violating a protective order. I wrote a, a memo saying I did no such thing. It was vituperative. I think we moved to recuse her again. Um, she then enters a default against my client. And, you know, so there wasn't a whole lot of love in the air. And then, <laughs> and, and then at some point in Texas, um, um, uh, my colleague in Texas received some material that was subject to a protective order. This judge, based on what she reads in a newspaper, um, orders a show cause hearing as to me on the eve of trial, such that my law license is under attack. And now she's the judge and jury rather than the disciplinary committee. And, you know, and I, and I decide for reasons that my lawyer and I won't discuss to take the fifth at that hearing. And so I'm on the witness stand in her courtroom taking the fifth while she's in, well, disciplinary counsel is asking questions and she's not happy about it. So I, 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 I would suggest to you that there was a more, more than nominal animosity in that case. And I'll give her credit for behaving as professionally as she did. So I would walk, you know, I have my, my law partners, young man named Kevin Smith. 
I say young because I'm 67. He's 46. And, you know, that's young in my perspective. He uh, he he made a he he got me for one holiday uh, a, a nice wall hanging, a poster. And it's from um, To Kill a Mockingbird. And it's Atticus Finch saying to Scout, um, you know, I want to show you what real courage is. Courage isn't a guy with a gun. It's when you know you're licked, but you go and you fight anyhow. Sometimes you win. Most often you don't. It says something like that. And so I would, I spent a lot of, and then I have another picture of Clarence Darrow, you know, looking worn down and haggard and, you know, you know, justice is, you know, there is no justice in or out of court. And so I, there, I spent a lot of late nights and early morning in the office looking at those things. And then I would walk into the courtroom and I would read Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil because thou art with me. And my commitment was to do the best possible job that I could for my client and not let my feelings about the judge or her feelings about me affect my judgment. I'd think about Atticus Finch. I'd think about what real courage is. I'd think about Clarence Darrow and the challenges he had. And then I would say, whatever else happens, I'm not going to lose my temper in this courtroom. I'm not going to give an inch. And, you know, there were there were occasions, there were four lawyers before the bar in this case, lawyers in the gallery. They're piling motions on. Everything's an ordeal. And sometimes I would be so frustrated because I, I wouldn't understand what they were doing or I'd think it was stupid or they would never take no for an answer. They'd lose a motion and pout about it for days and keep coming at it. And I would, And I said to one of them, look, I don't know how many of you there are in this courtroom. But let's get the rough fundamentals straight here. Do what you want to do. I will be the last man standing here. So you can do it my way or you can do it the hard way. You choose, but I'll be the last man standing. And that's, you know, that's how I've approached trial. It's a it's a question of stamina. Um, you may get the verdict, but you'll never beat me. I don't think you I don't think you lost your temper with the judge. Um there were times where I think I could sense that you were frustrated. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, I, I know at one point, I think you you were sitting when you're making some objections in the beginning. Then you then she didn't like that. And then you stood up and then there was a point we did. No, sorry. You know, and then and I and I remember the exchanges, some of the exchanges. Um, usually at a sidebar some of that stuff kind of gets ironed out, right? Because there's some, I don't know, there's some collegiality, a couple of chuckles. There's some, you know, trying to 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 unruffle feathers, you know, but there was none of that in this case from what I could tell. No, it was awful. I mean, you know, the Koskoff lawyers, they, you know, they, I, I have never been treated with such contempt and scorn and condescension as I have with that firm. And I, you know, people say that's typical of them. They're, you know, they, they view themselves as on the high road and the rest of us have to beg for permission to approach. I'm, I'm just not built that way. As to the judge, um, you know, when things were pretty tense, she had us up at the sidebar once. And I don't know if this made the record, but she said, you know, I, I, I treat you guys, you, you, you counsel with respect. And I would ask that you do likewise with respect to one another and me. And I, I did say, um, you know, I'm not going to go down that road, Judge. I can think of a certain jurist who, based on what she read in the newspaper, held a show cause hearing about a counsel appearing in front of her and made choice remarks about that counsel that were broadcast to the world um, to that counsel's detriment. 
I'm not going to talk about that now. <laughs> <laughs> and so my view was, hey, you know, you want my law license, Molan Labe, come and take it. Okay, but we're going to war. And that's what I'm here for. I am a member of, a, a, you know, um, Advocates Anonymous, you know. Yeah, check, AA, yeah. Check, tell me where that phrase came up. I'm going to end on that point. Tell me where that phrase came up. Because I'll tell you what, uh, Norm, if nothing else, um, you demonstrated that you were going to, to you're going to fight for your client. You're going to fight for your client. This is where the fights take place in civilized society. They take place in a courtroom. There are, and you kept pointing, there are certain rules to how we conduct these fights and the rules of evidence. And these are the rules. And you were like, I'm not going to apologize for having a client. I think you may even use this phrase. I'm not going to apologize for having a client to represent. I'm going to represent my client. And if you want to send me to member of AA, Advocates Anonymous. And so I'm going to advocate for my client until until I, I can't do it anymore. Where did that phrase come from? I, because I remember. Well, I'll tell I, you where it comes from. A yeah. good friend of mine, and I've tried a lot of cases together. He's a personal injury lawyer named Jim Nugent. I, I don't think he's ever lost a car accident case that I can recall in 30 years. Um, and so at one point, I agreed I'd teach him how to try a murder case if he'd teach me how to try a car case. And so he came with me to some murder cases and did really well. I left during the first car case. I mean, nobody, you know, just it, was, it just wasn't exciting enough for me. But we used to refer to ourselves as suffering from advocatitis. By the time you get involved in a case, you you just can't see anything but your point of view, and you're gonna go, you're gonna go get it. And so it's really not advocate advocate advocates anonymous that that's what was said because it was a sidebar it's really assaholics anonymous and it comes from <laughs> alcoholics anonymous and you know um i like a good fight put me in the courtroom put me next to a client and tell me what we're fighting about and game on i just want to do i want to go to war i love i love the intellectual combat uh, you know as you do no doubt you know, about it there's the rules. There are the rules of procedure. There's the rule of there are the rules of evidence. And my view is say what you want to say about my client, but you, if you want them, you got to come get them and you got to come get them through me. And I ain't going to make it easy on you. And I just, that's the way I roll. And that know? was, that, that was clear. Yeah. So I know, I know that there's a motion for a new trial or right motion to set aside the verdict, a motion for a new trial. When is that going to be heard? If you know, there are three post-trial motions. We, I filed a motion. Still involved? Are you still oh, yeah. involved in the case? Yeah, okay. yeah there's a motion for a new trial um, based on 12 or so factors, many of which we've talked about here, uh, some of which we didn't. There's a motion for remitter. I don't think they're, the, the plaintiffs never asked for a dollar. They never submitted a bill. They never had expert testimony of any sum. Uh, the plaintiff's counsel just got up and said 550 million impressions, a dollar, $2 an impression. You can do what you want to do. That's the case. Um, so there's a remitter motion. And then today we filed motions against their being uh, granted uh, punitive damages under the Unfair Trade Practices Act. Um, uh, for a series of grounds. So there'll be a brief hearing. There are some evidence taken next Friday on the reasonableness of the attorney's fees that they're entitled to in this case. Then there'll be argument the following Monday, and then they will respond to my new trial petitions, and we will argue those in December. So judgment will finally enter in this case sometime in December. Then the appellate clock will get ticking. And, you know, I've, I have been asked to stay on for the appeal. I hope that doesn't change because I'm going to win it on appeal. All right. Well, I'm going to have you back when that case is well, after the appeal is heard. I'm looking in the meantime. Now you got it. The next one that I have to do, you know, I was in pretrials this morning. I'm getting ready for another 
another ordeal where I'm going to be representing Joe Biggs, one of the Proud Boys, come December 12th in the in the second criminal sedition trial um, 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 in in the nation. I guess the uh, Oath Keepers are, trial is going on right now. So I'm you know I'm up here in Vermont right now trying to chill and get a little bit of rest between the storms, but I'm looking forward to another war. When does that trial start? December 12th. And unfortunately, 12th. it's going through the holiday season and they're, we're even going to sit between Christmas and New Year's. So I'm looking for an Airbnb down in D.C. for five or six weeks. And and I'm you know, bringing my war paint. <laughs> <laughs> You're a warrior, man. <laughs> well, that's what we all are. That's what we do, yes. right? Yes, that's sir. what we do. Yes, sir. Norm, I so appreciate you coming on and talking to me about this case. So um, you know, I, I, I'm so flattered you'd I, have me. Thank you so I, much. I enjoyed chatting with you and thank you. And I'm going to have you on again as you tackle some of these behemoth cases. So, or get I tackled look, by them, you know, no, I mean, look, I'm sitting on standing. a pair, I'm sitting on four hot cross buns and it helps up here in Vermont when you wait, you know, it was 29 degrees this morning when I woke up, it's not even November. So I'm glad to have hot cross buns. What's the song? <laughs> is it, is it an Elton John song? Is it that I'm still standing? So I'm uh, still standing. <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm, you're I, there. Yeah. It, we all owe nature of death with, with any luck. I'll be carted out of a courtroom with an objection hot on my lips. You know? <laughs> if you want me to say from your mouth to God ears, your God yeah. ears. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, let me know the courtroom that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go to that courtroom and we'll all walk in. We'll do some corny thing on TV. Like we'll all walk in with our, you know, Norm Pattis story, and we'll tell yeah. the story in that courtroom yeah. about your passing. So that'll be just like hey. the Sandy Hook trial, another <laughs> memorial service. <laughs> well, long that that won't be for many, many years. Let's anyway, hope. Norm, it's great to have you on. Norm Pattis, true warrior. Um, and uh, I'm so glad you joined me again for another talk about uh, on the Killer Cross Examination podcast. Thanks, man. Thanks, Neil. Bye.